Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today I will be joined by Luke Boggs in just a little bit. We've got a bonus podcast for y'all this week. Today we're going to share with you an interview that Luke and I conducted with Bob Trammell, the minority leader in the state house. Leader Trammell talked with us about a variety of issues, including making a little news by joining the call that the sterogenics facility in Smyrna have their operations suspended while safety concerns and concerns over pollution controls are worked out. Leader Trammell also describes Democrats' strategy for taking back the state house in the 2020 elections and the agenda for his caucus in the upcoming 2020 legislative session. So without further ado, here I am with Luke and Georgia House Minority Leader Bob Trammell. All right, joining the podcast is Bob Trammell. He's the minority leader in the state house, and he is a state representative from House District 132. Leader Trammell, welcome to the podcast. Listen, great to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast, so happy, uh, happy to be on. Thanks for coming on, Leader Trammell. Happy to have you here. And while, you know, you and I know each other pretty well, uh, most of our listeners might not know who you are. And so just wanted you know, start us off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your district and what you do as Minority Leader. Sure. Well, the um, I'm a small town lawyer, live in a town, Luthersville, which has about 800 people. My district is essentially stretches from Noonan to LaGrange on, on 85. Uh, married, have three kids, six, four, and one. And, uh, you know, in, in my spare time, I serve as the, uh, the House Democratic leader. Been, uh, been elected for five years now, and uh, this is my, I guess, going into my third session in January as leader. Great. So let's start off with some policy here. So possibly the biggest policy news of the summer has been Governor Kemp's instructions to state agencies to plan for a combined 10% spending cut in this year's amended budget and next year's full budget. That that 10% cut is combined between the two. The call for budget cuts has led to an unusual situation where the House is having some appropriations hearings this fall. What is your view of the call for these spending cuts, and how do you think a 10% combined cut would impact service delivery in Georgia? Well, I, the, first of all, the, I think that, you know, it's, it certainly sends a mixed message when you have uh, an administration that, that talks about how, how good things are going and how strong the economy is, but then sends out a request for cuts to state agencies when they submit their budgets. And you know, unquestionably, uh, there are there are signs of trouble in the on the horizon in the economy. When you look at an inverted yield curve, uh, I think the, the the spread actually even got larger today uh, in the inversion. But you know, with respect to where we are, we have over two billion dollars in the rainy day fund. You know, Georgia's spending I think is 50th out of 50 states. So. The, the, the truth is there's um, you know there's there's not a lot of room when you start talking about uh, cutting in the budget without uh, cutting into the bone and um, when you start doing belt tightening of, of that type it, it's those with the leanest waists who can least afford to get squeezed who get squeezed the tightest and uh, that's something that we're going to take a very close look at in our caucus through the appropriations process. And I also want to say that, you know, we're scheduled to take up sort of the second phase of 
uh, a cut in the income tax rate in Georgia that walked down to 5.75% already and uh, with a scheduled uh, vote in 2020 to with a further walk down to to 5.5%. And, and for the life of me, I can't figure out how it's going to make any sense at all to to move forward with uh, with a cut of that type uh, when you're talking about cutting, you know, cutting into the budget, which will will certainly impact service delivery and will impact a lot of Georgians who who need uh, those services the most. So coinciding with the governor's call for budget cuts, House Speaker David Ralston has organized a committee to take a look at new revenue sources for the state. And from the reporting, the prime candidate appears to be some form of gambling, either casinos or horse racing and betting or some kind of sports betting. Where do you stand on the question of expanded gambling in the state of Georgia? Well, you know, I think as a as a general a general matter, the we have members in our caucus who have have sentiments on on both sides. Something that uh, the state should be very careful and and take a uh, deliberate look at. I mean, undoubtedly, the the study commission that is having hearings uh, is a clear sign that. Uh, that the the gambling legislation is uh, is going to be a topic that we can expect to hear a lot about in the upcoming legislative session. And you know, in, in all honesty, um, for for me, uh, I have very mixed feelings about ca- casinos and and gambling. I mean, on the you know, on the one hand, uh, there are social costs uh, when you bring something like uh, gambling in that have that you you certainly can't ignore, and I think any legislation would need to address that. I mean, on the other hand, uh, there there is certainly an economic development aspect to it, and there certainly is the there certainly is the revenue side of it. And I think that the state has to carefully sort through that. I mean, I'll certainly be carefully evaluating that. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, we can't ignore is the Supreme Court has in its decision uh, that opened the door for all states with respect to sports, sports betting, you know, surrounding states. I think Tennessee just passed a measure that uh, legalized to some extent uh, in-state betting um, on, uh, on sports books. And I think those are things that, you know, developments that we, we certainly, certainly can't ignore. But fundamentally, this is a question for the Georgia voters at some juncture. And um, I think it is a, an argument that has a lot of merit that the public in, in, in one form or fashion probably has a right to decide, you know, where it wants to be on this question. And uh, constitutional amendment is obviously a difficult lift because it requires a two-thirds uh, majority in, in both chambers. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it would require approval and ratification uh, by the Georgia voters. And then the other thing I would say uh, with respect to this topic is that um, we have a, a keen interest in, as a, as a caucus, uh, the conversation about uh, where that kind of revenue would go. And one, undoubtedly, one of the successes of the uh, the lottery program is the fact that those funds were earmarked for education and that they weren't used, uh, that we didn't cut the budget, you know, to offset the the money that was going uh, to the lottery, but they they funded programs 
that were an addition and a force multiplier. And uh, we need to make sure that um, in if anything uh, does come about in the space uh, as we head into this session or subsequent sessions, that we uh, that we recognize a um, a dedicated purpose. And we've we've earmarked and laid down needs-based scholarship as an earmarker. And two two sessions ago, file legislation uh, that that would also earmark funds. Um, in conjunction with a constitutional amendment for uh, that would go into a Medicaid program with an idea that, you know, that could be a, a source of funding for Medicaid expansion. So hopefully that that gives you a flavor of, uh, you know, where we are on this question and what we're looking at. Yeah, I think that's a pretty full full smorgasbord of the uh, ideas that you're throwing around. And uh, on that note, I want to kind of change gears to the upcoming elections next year. Uh, I think Democrats have done a pretty good job, uh, both in the House and the Senate, and our candidates running to hit on like what we are against. You know, it's very clear that Democrats don't like campus carry. We don't like the abortion restrictions that the, you know, the state house and Senate and the governor signed. Uh, we don't like those things. But what does the Democratic Party of Georgia stand for? You know, what are we offering voters in comparison to what we're getting from the current Republican administration? Well, you know, the, uh, I would uh, start and talk about the, uh, you know, since you since you referenced the uh, the campus carry, I mean, there's a there's a very clear um, there's a very clear policy agenda that our caucus has and has advanced in the form of legislation when it comes to reasonable common sense gun safety laws. We have 12 bills right now uh, on these topics that that the overwhelming majority of Georgians would support. Uh, any one of these bills that can get a hearing in committee. And so, um, you know, that's certainly something that uh, we as a caucus and we as Georgia Democrats are advocating for. But the reality is that, you know, we have to have a different composition in the General Assembly to to move that agenda forward. You know, in the space of uh, in the space of health care, we are have advocated consistently since the inception of the Affordable Care Act for the expansion of Medicaid in Georgia. And yet we are still one of, I think, 14 states that have not taken uh, advantage of the federal funding and we have not expanded Medicaid. Those are two examples of where we are, um, we are leading uh, and we have an agenda that would benefit Georgians, but until we get a different General Assembly elected, where Democrats are in the majority, we can't move those through. And then with respect to even a bill like uh, we have Representative Wilson, who has a uh, piece of legislation that would ban conversion therapy. You know, that's another that's another piece of legislation that, you know, requires a, a different majority to uh, to become law and become enacted. And we we were very much as a caucus behind uh, a hate crimes bill that we were able to pass out of the House, but it passed essentially with the Democratic caucus voting as a block and then maybe 20, 20 or so uh, Republican colleagues who uh, voted in favor of the bill to to get it across the finish line. And then the final thing that I would say is in terms of, you know, broad, uh, you know, broad based policy is 
we have a situation right now in Cobb County and uh, down in the in the Newton County area where we are experiencing the effect of just a complete lack of uh, environmental enforcement from from EPD. Uh, and we we certainly need to to go in and have uh, a stronger uh, regulatory enforcement and look at legislation that will protect Georgians uh, because clean air and clean water uh, is something that uh, everybody has a right to. And we just need to make sure we're not asleep at the switch, which apparently the state has been. Yeah. And, you know, as we talked about before, um, this is a really critical inflection point for the Democratic Party with the 2020 election. Since we did not win the gubernatorial election, we are at risk of being completely gerrymandered out if we don't control one of the uh, state, you know, the state Senate or the state House. And so uh, I personally think that we could win the state House. And I think we would do that with, uh, you know, forming a pretty coherent narrative among our candidates of why, Georgia desperately needs Democrats to control one of these chambers, and it has to do with more than just uh, what would benefit our party. So I, I guess what I'd ask you is, what is your like rationale for that, you know, sort of like the message to the voters, but also sort of the like strategy that you think is going to be necessary for us to take over the state house this election in 2020? Well, I think that in terms of strategy for the election in 2020, it's it's kind of what we just talked about, right? It's a it's it's making sure that voters understand that there there is a difference between uh, a, a majority, a, a Republican control majority, and uh, and a Democratic majority in uh, in the legislature, and and that means that you know when you elect Democrats and you have a democratically controlled House, you don't th- you don't have things like uh, House Bill 481. You have a chance of advancing bills like Medicaid expansion, uh, and you can get these twelve uh, these twelve common sense gun pieces of gun safety legislation, you know, out of committee and and through the legislative process. I mean, is is taking the House going to uh, magically mean that we can make all those things happen when you have a Republican governor and and or uh, a Republican Senate? No, but what it does mean is that um, it does mean that we have a, a greater ability to um, advance the legislative agenda further, and I think it will bring in uh, I think it'll bring in clear contrast the the difference between the parties, and you know voters are ultimately if if you want common sense gun safety laws uh, in Georgia, and you want access to health care, uh, I think that. You know those voters are are going to cast uh, ballots uh, in favor of the Democratic candidates. With respect to you know where that puts us in in terms of redistricting, if um, if we are are able to um, uh, win the House in 2020, obviously it puts us in a better position. But what I would say is that you know voters on the whole and are they're tired of politicians. Sort of selecting uh, selecting their voters, uh, and our caucus has uh, advocated a, a nonpartisan uh, redistricting process. Obviously, that is is something that we have, you know, is one of those bills that uh, we have gotten stuck has gotten stuck in the committee process. But I think that you know, good government is uh, is, is certainly 
um, would involve uh, sort of a, a, a less political line drawing. But given that it is uh, that we're not at that point yet, it's certainly paramount that, uh, that we have as great a voice in the conversation as we possibly can. And and that means that we have to make every effort to uh, to win the house in 2020. Yeah, I definitely definitely agree with that. But the you know the one one thing I really want to know is like what what did we learn from 2018? Because while we did really good and uh, ganging seats, we didn't take the state house, and I feel like this is the same strategy that we had last time. And so our you know like where have the circumstances changed? You know have have people turn been turn, more turned off by? Uh, the Kemp administration and the you know new legislation that's come out of that, or do you think Democrats are in a better pos- position to advocate for their position? So uh, you know it's a it's a combination of it's a combination of factors, but the you know every election cycle the Democratic trend line gets better. So the 2018 trends were were better for us than in in 2016. It's going to be you know we really like where those trend lines are, are headed at 2020. And one thing 18 showed us is where we were uh, moving in the right direction and in, in a lot of districts that, you know, frankly, uh, people didn't think we, we would have a shot at under these maps uh, are in play. And, you know, you combine that with the fact that you have uh, a president who is, you know, on the ballot in 2020 that is just frankly going to be unpopular with a lot of voters uh, in these districts that are uh, in play uh, for us to to take back the house, and the, the the thing that I worried about, you know, funnily enough, in 2018 was, you know, I worried that how are we going to tie uh, Republican candidates at a state house level to to Donald Trump? And turns out, you know, there was no need to worry about that at all because. It was just a full embrace of of Trump and his policies, and in in 2020, you know, we're we're seeing the same thing. Can you name a single member of a single elected official on on the GOP side in Georgia that has tried to distance himself or herself from Donald Trump? You can't do it. And 2020 is shaping up to be an earthquake, and the impact of that is going to mean that there are going to be a lot more Democrats elected. Well, let's talk a little bit more about 2020 here. You're one of only a handful of Georgia officials who has made an endorsement for president early in this primary process. Earlier this summer, you endorsed California Senator Kamala Harris for president. So why should Senator Harris be the next president? Well, the first the first thing is that she's got a um, she's been an executive as, as the attorney general in, in California. She has a, a 3 a.m. agenda that's focused on what people uh, people care about and the, the type of kitchen table issues they sit down and, and talk about uh, about how how they can have access to um, affordable health care. And she's also been committed to uh, addressing uh, the issue of, of gun violence uh, in our country. But you know, in, in terms of what what she is um, able to do in the in the Democratic primary, uh, and and one of the reasons that uh, I was initially uh, drawn to her as one of one of the candidates that uh, I thought would uh, have a great uh, would make a great president is that 
I think she's good. She would do well in Georgia. And I think she is a, a candidate who could put Georgia in play in the Democratic column. And, and obviously, that is something that we have a tremendous interest in as, as Georgia Democrats, because Georgia, anything that we can do to, to maximize the chances of, of Georgia as a battleground state going in the Democratic column in the presidential election, you know, we want to do. Um, so you touched on this briefly, but I want to come back to this issue of air pollution. So in recent weeks, residents of Smyrna and Covington have been alarmed to learn that medical sterilization facilities have been emitting a carcinogenic chemical called ethylene oxide into the air. And a recent report by Georgia Health News and WebMD brought to light that the EPA had placed the chemical into a new category for its, pot- for its potential to cause elevated cancer risks, and that this news was delivered to states, but it was not broad- broadcast publicly in any way that was really accessible. Two legislative Democrats, uh, Representative Eric Allen from your caucus and Senator Jen Jordan, have called for the company in Smyrna to have their operations shut down while emissions are reduced. Do you think that either the Smyrna or Covington facility should be closed? So the one that uh, the one that obviously has uh, more has gotten more attention is the the facility in Smyrna, and in part that's because of the um, that you have greater population density uh, in Smyrna around the facility. Um, there's actually some some new reporting today. I think that lends uh, a lot of support for the idea of a suspension of operation there in that um, there there was apparently an explosion uh, in 2018 that uh, got swept under the rug and they had not come clean about uh, at the sterogenics facility. And it really raises uh, it raises a lot of questions. Uh, and I think that the you know, the uh, the public health interest is that you know there needs to be transparency about what happened there, uh, and I think that there was also a leak in addition to that earlier this summer, as uh, this issue began to sort of percolate to the surface. That again, uh, they sought to to cabin and confine and keep out of the the public view. So uh, I would I would favor uh, a suspension in light of those facts. I think they they do militate in favor of. Uh, a suspension of operation until we can sort of get to the bottom of of what happened and uh, get a process in place that is is not uh, a risk to public health. And looking at this issue broadly, do you think that the legislature has some kind of oversight rule here? Should the House or, or maybe your colleagues over in the Senate be holding hearings to get to the bottom of why EPD didn't notify Georgians of these emissions and their implications for cancer risk sooner? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's why I think that's one of the, the functions that um, let the legislature serves and why people elect their legislators when they send us to Atlanta to make sure that we're asking those types of questions. And, and, and look, I mean, there's, there's, clearly, uh, there's clearly been a gap in what, what should be done uh, and what was actually done. And we owe it to, uh, you know, we owe it to Georgians, particularly those uh, in the communities that are around these uh, facilities to get answers to these questions and make sure that if we have industries operating in Georgia, that they're, they're doing it in a way that's not putting the lives of Georgians at risk. 
So uh, to move on to yet another topic, in, in, in August, uh, federal judge Amy Toenberg prohibited the state of Georgia from using the current system of uh, voting machines after this year's municipal elections, and her orders also instructed the state to have a paper-based backup if the state's new voting machines aren't ready for the 2020 presidential primary. What is your view of the state's new voting machines, and you know how do you think Georgians should feel about it being secure? Because I know there was a lot of opposition from Georgia Democrats uh, when this bill was being debated, but now that we have a better idea of the vendor that's being chosen and the system that we're going to be using, what what is your view going forward? Well, look, I mean, I, I, the, my view is fundamentally the same as it was uh, when when this proposal was debated in the General Assembly, and that is that a uh, a hand-marked paper ballot system is the most secure system that gives us the ability to foster the most trust and confidence in voters in our, in our democratic process. And I, and I still believe that to be the case. The electronic ballot marking devices are inserting technology between the voter and the voter intent. And anytime you put technology in there in a space, it, it opens up the door to, to certain risks. And, you know, those risks were testified to by cybersecurity experts. And, and frankly, uh, the, the, concerns that those experts expressed were just manifestly ignored uh, in the legislative process and, uh, and, and in the final final product that we got. So, you know, it, it's one that you, you, you sort of hope that the worst case scenario doesn't materialize. But, you know, I, I find it very interesting. There, there are a couple of parallel things going on at the same time. Uh, which which aren't related uh, per se, but do highlight the the risks that these systems have. You know, there's the Department of Public Safety, the uh, the, the State Patrol. They have recently been victimized by a cyber attack, and literally the onboard computers um, of in every patrol car have been rendered useless. Uh, they can't use them, and the data uh, is all messed up. They can't get tickets electronically reported uh, to the courts from that they have, that they had written. And you know, this is just an example of a state agency uh, being vulnerable, having a vulnerability that was exploited, and having a tremendous impact on the function that that agency uh, is tasked with carrying out. And you can only imagine what would happen in the context of an election uh, if the uh, something similar happened and you couldn't get the results because the the data had been compromised as a result of uh, a cybersecurity attack. So uh, all this all this is to say that sometimes the best solution is the low tech solution. And um, in 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 my view, is as I said. Exactly the same when it comes to handmarked paper ballots being a superior alternative. I'm glad that you know we'll have a handmarked paper ballot backup. Uh, I mean, it's better than the system that we have now, where we don't have that uh, we don't have that possibility. But it's not the best system we could have. Is the bottom line? Yeah, I want to hit on one of the things you brought up in in that because it's just been very confusing to me 
I don't understand the Kemp administration and Raffensperger's like approach to this issue because, you know, this is something that nationwide some states are having trouble with, you know, whether it's hacking or it's outdated technology. And their approach has just basically been to say that there's nothing wrong, you know, look away. And, you know, to the point where they didn't even accept help from the Trump administration on these issues. Do you have any insight as to why? this has been their approach and they've been so combative and ignoring the like clear unarguable results. Cause to me, you know, you, you're a lawyer, I'm in law school. The order that judge Tonenberg wrote was, I mean, very harsh, like not at all an order that any administration, any person would want running against them. And so I've had trouble like conceptualizing why this has been their approach. I, I was just wondering if you had any insight or if you were just baffled as I was. Well, I, I mean, it doesn't. You, you you hope that when you go through the legislative process that you you follow uh, the empirical evidence and you make uh, fact-based, data-driven decisions uh, that translate into good public policy. And and obviously, this is one where that was not that type of that was it was not that type of decision-making process. I mean, I can, I can only speculate as to you know what the why, um, you know, why that is that uh, they were so adamant about it. And I, I think a lot of it is just that when um, that there was a lot invested in in the argument uh, and the, the case for electronic ballot marking machines and that a departure from that would look like a, a retreat and a political defeat. So, um, you know, we had doubling down and tripling down on that notion because they did not want to lose uh, political face on on the uh, on the notion that there's a there's a better way to do it. Setting that aside, what I can tell you about uh, the way that the process went forward and the way the legislation read and the mechanics of it and how it worked, I mean, it was a vendor driven process. You know, when 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 there were objections raised uh, to to the barcode issue, where there were efforts to make if we were going to go down the path of having an electronic ballot marking device, let's at least make sure that what's being read is the the mark next to the candidate's name and not some inscrutable marking like a barcode that nobody can read and is again subject to manipulation, but you can't sort of ferret out. And you know the Basically, the reason that the protections against that weren't implemented and, and weren't put in the bill is that, well, you know, it would eliminate it would eliminate too many vendors, and um, you know, I, I think in any procurement process, you know, you develop the specs. Our, our job is to tell tell vendors, you know, what we want, and the vendor's job is to to be there to meet the specs. But but this had it backwards, you know, it was the, the vendors dictating the specs, which then were being incorporated into the legislation. And, and that's just a, a process. Anytime that you've got something that favors vendors over voters, that's a broken process. So we've touched a little bit so far today on health care and on Democrats' support of Medicaid expansion, uh, but Republican leadership at the legislature and then in the governor's office took a different path this legislative session. Uh, they approved with Democratic opposition a plan to allow Governor Kemp to pursue two kinds of health care waivers from the federal government. 
During the debate on that waiver legislation, Republicans asserted in committee that the state of Georgia would be able to get full federal funding for a more limited expansion of Medicaid. But since then, the federal government has confirmed to Georgia that that will not be the case. Should the legislature step in and try to take back any kind of waiver authority from the governor in the 2020 session or otherwise give him new instructions based on new developments in this waiver conversation? Well, let me let me first start with talking about the conversation that we had that resulted in the, the legislation that, that passed. That was a, a piece of legislation that uh, while I was very excited and our caucus was very excited about having uh, a discussion around expanding coverage and access to health care in Georgia, uh, we wound up opposing uh, the governor's bill principally because it did not approximate the population that would be covered under Medicaid expansion. And we pointed out this very issue about the funding that when you cap the 1115 waiver at 100%, which is what his legislation did. So he did not have authority to go above 100% of the federal poverty level. And Medicaid expansion dollars, uh, or the, the funds that are available under the Affordable Care Act to cover the expanded Medicaid population, uh, that legislation requires you to go to 138% of the federal poverty level. And this was an extended debate and conversation that we had in the General Assembly and was why uh, was the main reason why uh, that our caucus and our colleagues in the Senate uh, opposed the legislation. And, uh, and then lo and behold, uh, as it turns out, the Center for Medicaid Services basically rejected the Utah plan that was similarly capped at 100%. So the, the, the bottom line is moving forward under uh, the presently constituted authority for the 1115 waiver means that you'll cover fewer people at a greater cost than if you just expanded Medicaid and could cover a larger universe of people at a lesser cost. So in the question about the, what should we do in the 2020 session, we should come back and do something in the space that is either Medicaid expansion or a waiver that closely approximates Medicaid expansion. Absolutely. Um, I don't think we have to take authority away. I think that the failure to put the waiver at 138% of the federal poverty level means that uh, it'll be very difficult for the state to come up with a meaningful proposal that covers people at a cost the state can can justify in the face of what we could get if we just went to 138% and tapped into uh, what Medicaid expansion would offer. Now, if the governor's office decides to go ahead and submit a waiver before the end of the year, if I'm recalling correctly, the legislation, I think, allows for that submission in 2019. And then you guys take over the state house after the 2020 elections. Do you think that the healthcare conversation at that point will have sailed with whatever gov- with whatever whatever waiver the governor submits either in 2019 or 2020 or do you think it would be a priority of house democrats particularly if they are the majority in the house chamber in 2021 to sort of finish the drill and get full medicaid expansion um, after that next election i mean we're committed we're committed to covering the georgians who could be covered if we expanded Medicaid. And to the extent that the state in the interim covers a subset of that population, uh, we're not gonna rest uh, and, and we're not gonna cease our efforts 
to make sure that we cover as many Georgians as we possibly can. So I wanted to close this up here by looking forward to the 2020 legislative session. We've already talked about that a little bit of you know, some specific things, but what are your goals for the 2020 session? So our goals for the 2020 session, we've talked about the, we've talked about the healthcare conversation, obviously. Um, you know, we, we again, uh, we, we have to revisit the issue of, of Medicaid expansion uh, in covering, uh, you know, more Georgians, particularly in light of the decision of uh, CMS on, on, the, uh, on the Utah waiver. We, we want to make sure that we are trying to um, advance, uh, advance the, the 12 bills that we have stuck in committee on, on common sense gun safety laws. And, and I want to I just say, now, these are things like uh, in Georgia is the, I think, the only state in the country where people who have been involuntarily committed, uh, civil civil commitment, uh, they've been uh, hospitalized and voluntarily committed uh, because of mental health issues. They they are ineligible. Um, the the probate courts transmit those those names to the uh, to the Georgia. Uh, crime information center and they get put on the national uh, registry of people who cannot purchase a firearm. But after five years, that data, those names are automatically purged. And regardless of uh, whether there's been any change in their underlying condition whatsoever. And, you know, this is the kind of gap in the law that, I mean, overwhelming number of Georgians can surely see this is just dumb policy. And not only is it dumb policy, but it's dangerous policy. So this is just one example of uh, the pieces of legislation that we have that we desperately need to, to move through the General Assembly and, and get enacted in the law. And then, you know, the, the, um, the, the third thing uh, is we're going to revisit this conversation about uh, – I, I fully anticipate that uh, the courts are – going to enjoin House Bill 481, but we got to get this law off the books. So you can expect us to engage in uh, an effort to try and, and repeal uh, repeal the law uh, that uh, was was enacted enacted this year. And uh, so it's uh, it's going to be a, a session where you have to buckle your seatbelt. But uh, I mean, that's what Georgians are expecting us to do is to to go and and fight for their values, and, and that's what we're prepared to do. All right. Well, we'll be looking forward to it. Bob Trammell is the minority leader in the state House of Representatives, and he also represents House District 132. Leader Trammell, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Listen, thanks for letting me join. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.